Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. I am pleased to welcome my friend, writer-director Jim Hemphill, for our latest installment in the ongoing series we call Icons. Jim, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Listen, thanks for coming back. Uh, last time you were on the show was for the Exorcist episode, which uh, I, I've mentioned uh, quite a bit has become the most downloaded show in the history of this podcast. So again, it's, it's great to have you back on. That's great to be here. So this time around, we're going to be talking about John Travolta. John Travolta has had a career that has spanned more than 40 years. Tell me what John Travolta means to you. Well, Travolta is interesting. I mean, he's been one of my favorite actors for, as you noted, he's been around for almost, you know, more than 40 years. And more than almost any other actor, he's been, his sort of rise and sustained career coincides with the rise of my falling in love with movies. You know, when I was a kid, you know, we've talked on the show before about Burt Reynolds. And when I was a kid, the three guys who kind of ruled the world were Burt Reynolds, Clint Eastwood, and John Travolta. They were the three biggest movie stars that I was aware of growing up in the, the late 70s and early 80s. So I first became conscious of John Travolta at about the same time that I was really becoming conscious of movies and becoming an active movie goer. And in fact, the first John Travolta movie I ever saw was Saturday Night Fever, but it wasn't, it was the PG rated version of Saturday Night Fever. Because when I was a kid, Saturday Night Fever was so huge that they they tried to milk it for all it was worth. And so after it had been playing for a while, they cut seven or eight minutes out of it and uh, dubbed the profanity and released a PG rated version of Saturday Night Fever. And that was the first thing I ever saw them in. And that I would have been somewhere around five years old or something like that when I saw that movie, five, six years old, and was just immediately wowed by him. And he's, But he's one of those guys who then, his career kind of, and I'm sure we'll talk, we'll go through uh, the different phases of his career and everything, but it kind of evolved as my love of movies evolved. So when I was a kid loving these movies, you know, loving these musicals and musical comedies like Saturday Night Fever and Grease and uh, Urban Cowboy and Staying Alive. It's like those were the kind of movies he was doing. And then once I was in, you know, film school, he he had this whole new phase of his career working with these auteurs like Quentin Tarantino and John Woo and 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 people like that. And and he and he and he's you know he sort of moved in a way that Eastwood and Travol or Eastwood and Burt Reynolds didn't. He moved into this very interesting career as a as a character actor i mean he's both he's both a great leading man a huge movie star and a great character actor i you know i i don't think you know most most movie stars if they're a really huge movie star and i'm I'm talking like huge the way travolta was huge like the john waynes or uh you know again the clint eastwoods they usually don't deviate too far from their persona that they establish and that's part of how they stay huge you know, it's it's impossible for me to imagine Clint Eastwood, for example, doing something like Travolta in Primary Colors, where it was just a totally transformative performance where he, you know, lost himself in the part. So, I mean, I think that's one thing that kind of separates Travolta a little bit is that fact that he's simultaneously, you know, a truly, truly great actor. Not that not that Eastwood and Burt Reynolds weren't great actors, I and mean, they 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 are or were. You know what I'm saying? In that way of having the kind of breadth and depth that a great character actor has, but also just having the massive star wattage of a huge leading man. And so, you know, so he's somebody who, he was really, again, he was really one of the first three, him, Reynolds, and Eastwood. They were the first three guys I was really aware of as a kid, as a kid, of you know, as uh, 
huge movie stars. And I was pretty much fascinated by his choices in his career from then on. Let's talk about the persona that he initially set up in the 1970s. An interesting thing I feel like about his, you know, the early 70s. I mean, I, I mean, I think part of, you know, part of why he took off was, aside from just being a really good actor, he had this really innate likability. There's something about Travolta. And I've you know, I've never, uh, I've never met him, but I know people who have worked with him and things like that. And every everything I've ever heard is that he's just an extremely, you know, sweet and generous guy. And I think that kind of comes through. And so even in, I think, you know, early in his career, like one of his first movies was uh, Brian De Palma's Carrie, where he plays like a pretty savage guy when you get right down to him. I mean, there's a guy, there's, you know, a scene where he's like killing pigs with a sledgehammer to uh, to fill up the bucket with blood for to pour on Carrie at the prom. And yet he has this kind of goofy affability in that movie. I think part of the reason he's so great in that movie is because there's this kind of collision between the darkness and the evil and the character and Travolta's in a affability and likability and when those two things come together in that movie it makes it a really uh fascinating character and i think there was just something about him in that period then going from then to boy in the plastic bubble and saturday night fever and greece those early movies and welcome back cotter on tv i think there was he just had he had this this really inviting quality that made the audience relate to him even even though again in some of these cases like carrie and saturday night fever he wasn't necessarily playing like conventionally likable characters and Tony Manero and Saturday Night Fever you watch that movie today and it's like you know him and his friends they're kind of they're kind of sexist jerks and yet uh and yet somehow that character just totally captured uh the country for a while let's talk about Saturday Night Fever just for a moment because from what I understand is that disco had kind of for lack of a better term had kind of flamed out it was sort of relegated toward sort of the uh, kind of the underground music scene by the by the late 1970s, and I wonder if you could speak to, just for a moment, just the the monumental shift in the popularity of disco music and just what the cultural significance of Saturday Night Fever brought to the table. Well, for me, again, I think I was probably around five or six years old when I saw Saturday Night Fever, and it was the thing that made me aware of what disco music was. I mean, I don't even remember knowing anything about disco before that movie. So, you know, it was, it was huge. And then for the next three years or so, that was all you heard practically was disco. I mean, and I, and I do think it's that, I think that movie almost single-handedly just propelled that music into the mainstream as the kind of dominant type of music people were listening to for a few years until it, it flamed out again. And, you know, I, I, I think we've talked about this a little bit on this show before when we talked about these movies from the 70s and 80s, it is impossible now, I think, to convey how huge a move, how huge an impact a movie could have in that era in a way that they just, they don't now and, and can't because the, the media landscape is so much more diffuse. And, you know, back in the 70s, I mean, this is the other thing you have to remember about John Travolta, is he came up in a period when there were three TV networks, you know, no streaming, no home video. So everybody was watching the same things. I mean, he did a movie in 19, I think it was 76-ish, like the same year he did Carrie and when he was kind of rising on Welcome Back, Cotter. He did a TV movie called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble. And I mean, everybody watched that thing. Everyone, Like, if you were in the country and you owned a TV set, 
you saw Boy in the Plastic Bubble. And Saturday Night Fever, when that came out, it just dominated the culture. I mean, it came out, if I'm remembering correct, if I got my dates correctly, it actually came out the same year as Smokey and the Bandit, speaking of Burt, and Star Wars. And those three movies, you know, just, they, they were everywhere. I mean, everybody wanted to wear a white suit like John Travolta. I mean, he, you know, for better or for worse, he became kind of a, a fashion icon. And the posters of him you know, they were, they were everywhere. I mean, that, that movie was just unbelievably popular. And like I say, I think you couldn't have that now. I mean, I think like the, the closest you have now in the last few years to something being a cultural phenomenon, the way a Saturday night fever or a star Wars or something like that was, would be, you know, maybe black Panther. And, and even that, I just, I don't think it's the biggest thing now. It just has too much competition. And so you can't, you can't have that happen anymore. I mean, John Travolta was a guy, he was, when he was becoming a movie, he was becoming a movie star at a moment when, if you were a movie star, it meant everybody in the country was watching you. Let's talk about 1978. We had two films released that year, vastly different from each other. Talking about Greece for a moment first. Now, from what I understand, before he even started acting, he Travolta was part of a touring company for Greece. So this was a this was a uh, a story and a musical that he was very familiar. I wonder if you could speak to the popularity of Greece, which I think has. I mean, looking back, Greece, I think, is still a phenomenon in 2019. I mean, just yeah. where just where I live. You know, they had a Grease sing-along a couple months ago, and everyone in the downtown area was dressed like the Pink Ladies or the T-Birds. I mean, this is, you want to talk about a cultural phenomenon. Talk a little bit about Grease. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it was, uh, he really had, I, I'm trying to think of what to even compare it to, because the, the one-two punch of Saturday Night Fever in Greece was completely enormous. And Greece may have even been, I can't remember, again, you know, going back, 40 years now. So I, I can't remember if Greece, Greece might have actually already come out or was about to come out at around the time that they did that Saturday Night Fever PG thing. Uh, but I remember seeing Greece as a kid and, uh, you know, it just, again, that movie played, that movie stayed in theaters forever. I mean, you know, again, it's another thing I think that you, it's hard to imagine now because movies, even popular movies, are in and out of theaters and you know, six weeks or something at the, at the most. And back then, I mean, Greece played for years. That thing stuck around. And you're right. It's one of those movies like Back to the Future or, you know, that, that just for whatever reason has stuck around and still gets gets watched all the time. I mean, and, and, I mean, I they show it here where I live in L.A. all the time at the Egyptian theater. And, you know, that, that it's it's and like you say, they have sing alongs. I think I, I feel like it had what really brought it back was in 1998 for its 20th anniversary they gave it a big theatrical re-release and ever since then i feel like it's just kind of been back in the, the cultural conversation i actually remember seeing it opening night of its theatrical re-release at the big chinese theater here and then walking down the street to the galaxy and seeing primary colors which was opening at around the same time and it was kind of like in four hours you could see you sort of trace the evolution of john travolta and just realize what a phenomenon this guy was but but anyway Greece much like Saturday Night Fever a big part of it had to do aside from Travolta's star power and the combo of him and Olivia Newton-John in, in Greece 
uh, both of those movies, a big part of their popularity was had to do with the fact that they just had killer soundtracks and those albums were huge. And it was sort of the beginning of a period in American movies where there was this synergy between the record companies and the studios and the albums were kind of commercials for the movies and vice versa. And I think that had a lot to do with Greece's popularity, as did the fact that just, you know, I think there are a couple, for me, there may be a few key directors who worked with Travolta and the first of them, well, I don't know if the first of them, because I don't remember which came first, Blaine Plastic Bubble or Carrie, but uh, the first two were certainly Randall Kleiser and Brian De Palma, because De Palma did Carrie in 76 and Kleiser did Blaine the Plastic Bubble in 76 and then reunited with Travolta in 78. And I think Greece was one of those cases where you had a great young director, a hungry young star who loved, clearly had an affinity for this part and loved it. And to a certain degree, I think they had, they benefited from the fact that Greece, believe it or not, at the time was kind of a low profile, low budget movie. I mean, for a studio film, you know, you, you look at that movie and you can, you can tell that there, there are things where like the backs of sound stages on the Paramount lot are doubling for, high school and things. I mean, it wasn't a movie where they had enormous resources, but I think that allowed them to kind of do it under the radar and make the movie they wanted to make. And then it just completely, uh, yeah, it just, it just captured the public again, much like Saturday Night Fever and probably even more so than Saturday Night Fever because it was a PG movie, because it was a, a family movie where Saturday Night Fever was, you know, pretty in its R-rated version was a pretty raw, rough movie. I'm going to ask you about the other movie that came out in 1978, but first I want to talk about Talk a little bit about, I know this is kind of coming out of left field, but back in the 70s, actors would work for a particular studio. I mean, they would be under contract, and that doesn't seem to be the case these days. Could you talk just a little bit about what it meant to work for a particular studio? Yeah, I don't think it was even that much the case back then. I mean, I think it was already, I think it was already pretty, that system was already pretty much on its way out by the 60s. And it but it's funny because Paramount, where Travolta did, uh, several movies and I don't think he was under contract necessarily Paramount. He was under contract to a guy named Robert Stigwood, who was a record producer who produced, if I produced, I think the albums for Saturday night fever and Greece. And he, he produced the movies Saturday night fever, Greece and moment by moment, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. So Travolta was kind of under contract to him, but he had this relationship with Paramount because then they did urban cowboy Paramount and staying alive. And Paramount was kind of one of the last of the studios, I think to still do those contracts. I mean, I remember they when 48, Eddie Murphy did 48 hours there. I think before it even came out, they knew what they had and they kind of locked him down in this this contract for a few movies. But, uh, but I think that system was more or less already, um, it, it already started kind of dying in, in the 60s. So I don't know that there was, there was much of it, but I do, but you, but you did kind of just associate Travolta for a while. He was, again, he was kind of associated with Paramount because he did, Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and Urban Cowboy, for, and then Staying Alive for them. And those were sort of, that, those were all his biggest movies in that era. Let's talk about moment by moment, if we could. And before we get into the film, you want to talk about star power. Talk a little bit about Lily Tomlin in the late 1970s. Yeah, well, Moment by Moment was a very big, um, it was a big movie. This was, so this was the movie that Travolta did after Grease, between Grease and Urban Cowboy. And it was him and Lily Tomlin, and both of them, I mean, the, the expectations for this movie were huge because Lily Tomlin was coming off of, you know, Robert Altman's Nashville and Laughing. I mean, she was so she was extremely she was an extremely popular 
I mean, she had been an extremely popular comedic actress, and then Nashville kind of moved her into this realm where she was also being taken seriously dramatically. And so moment by moment was this sort of, it's basically this two-hander. I mean, it's there's most of the movie is Travolta and Lily Tomlin in a room. I mean, there's not a ton of other stuff going on. And it's, it's basically a movie where it was written and directed by um, uh, Lily Tomlin's partner of, you know, God, however many years, I think they got married uh, a few years ago, Jane Wagner, uh, both her creative and personal partner. And so Jane Wagner wrote and directed this movie where Lily Tomlin plays a kind of wealthy Southern California woman whose husband leaves her for somebody else. And Travolta is like a young hustler who she meets. And that's basically this kind of older woman, younger man romance. And the again, the, the sort of expectations because of the two of them being as big as they were, were that this was just going to be another huge movie. And I actually think it's, I'm a big fan of this movie, but it was not, it was horribly received when it came out and didn't do particularly well given the, the stars were in it. And I think, you know, I don't know. It's, I've, I've, I always try to figure out what it was about this movie that people didn't like, or, and really it was just the critics. I mean, the, there, there are a few movies that Travolta did that the critics just kind of killed. And this is one of them. And I have a, a theory. If we get to perfect later, that one, I know why they killed it. This one, even though it's a good movie, this one, I'm not sure if it was that it's, I think exactly what I like about it is what, churned some people off, which is the emotional nakedness and vulnerability of it. I mean, I think that both Travolta and Lily Tomlin, I actually think they're pretty brave performances, but I think they are brave. The bravery of the performances, the fact that they kind of leave themselves so emotionally exposed also leaves them open to be laughed at or mocked if, if the movie, if you're not on the same wavelength that the movie is on. And, um, and it is a movie that has some very strange, it's some of the dialogue is very weird. It's like, there's this whole subplot with John Travolta has a friend who's in jail and Travolta's like talking to Lily Tomlin about getting a writ of habeas corpus. And it's like this thing that just doesn't sound like anything this guy, this character would say, but the thing about moment by moment, if you watch it now, and it's hard to come by for whatever reason is in a way, almost even more than Saturday Night Fever in Greece, I feel like it just shows the way Travolta could command the camera in that era. I mean, when he like smiles, it's funny. I was watching the movie with my cats, and there's this whole theory Jack Nicholson has that uh, what makes a movie star, is, what makes a star, is if you're on the stage and a cat runs across the stage, if the audience is still watching you, you're a star. And I was watching moment by moment with my cats and my cats were riveted to the TV every time John Travolta was on. So he's such a movie star that, you know, cats watch him. But anyway, but it was a movie. It almost, you know, it really, as much as Saturday Night Fever and Grease represented this kind of meteoric rise. I mean, that just put on moment by moment, almost it really put the brakes on hard. Um, and luckily, you know, he came back pretty strong a couple years later with urban cowboy, which was a big hit, but it's, but it's, that's the other funny thing about Travolta is like, he has more comebacks than just about anybody else. And they, they come really close together. It's, it's, it's a very strange career where people, the press will kind of write him off on the basis of like one movie. And then a couple of years later, he'll come back with, he'll have a comeback movie an urban cowboy or a look who's talking or a Pulp Fiction or whatever, you know? And it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a very, he definitely, he seems to inspire extreme reactions in the press, I, I feel like. And, and it's, there's always this really strong back and forth in the way people respond to the movie. And moment by moment, you know, maybe it was just as simple as 
well, this guy had been built up so much for his previous couple movies. It was time they felt like it was time to tear him down, and there was a backlash. But I actually think moment by moment, it's a pretty good movie. You mentioned earlier about sort of the diversity of of Travolta performances, and I think with 1980s urban cowboy, he really plays against type. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could talk a little bit about the significance of this film. And again, just like Saturday Night Fever sort of kicked off the disco craze. I mean, urban cowboy, I think brought a renaissance sort of to the country western music and the country western bars and things like that you bet i mean that's urban cowboy basically did for country and western what saturday night fever did for disco and it's another one of these you know travolta does a lot of these interesting movies that are kind of anthropological studies of a subculture and and a lot of movies weirdly enough that are based on magazine articles like saturday night fever was based on a magazine article urban cowboy is based on a magazine article perfect is based on a magazine article and he, he does these movies that are these kind of that go into these burrow into these worlds and i do think yeah if you want a sense of travolta's versatility all you got to do is look at saturday night fever and urban cowboy back to back because the fact that this guy could play the most you know urban New Yorker in Saturday Night Fever, an urban New York disco guy in Saturday Night Fever, and then this Houston cowboy, cowpoke construction worker in Urban Cowboy, and in both movies feel like he's playing himself. You know, that's a real testament. And yeah, Urban Cowboy did... It, it was, a, again, very similar situation to Saturday Night Fever. It had a huge soundtrack. I mean, you could not go into a record store in 1980 without seeing a gazillion copies of that soundtrack. In fact, they put out the soundtrack, and it didn't have every song that was in the movie. It was kind of like a selection of the, the biggest stuff in the movie. And then that was so big, they put out another album called Urban Cowboy 2 that was like whatever songs had been left over. And, and they were both, you know, really huge. And that movie was another one of what I think is kind of important director-actor relationship in um, Travolta's life which is James Bridges, who uh, directed Urban Cowboy. And, you know, James Bridges is kind of forgotten now. And it's unfortunate because he was a really great director. He, he only directed, I think, eight movies. But his his ratio of good stuff, and I wouldn't say good stuff to bad because I don't think he ever made a bad movie. But uh, but he did, you know, he did The China Syndrome and uh, and Urban Cowboy. Uh, what am I forgetting? Gosh, The Paper Chase. You know, he did some really great movies. And uh, Urban Cowboy was the first movie he did with Travolta, and they reunited again for, for Perfect. And I think, you know, uh, James Bridges was known as a great actor's director, and I think he, there's something, in Urban Cowboy, I feel like he gave Travolta the, the space to dig a little deeper than he had up until that point. I mean, I think, I think with Urban Cowboy and Blowout, the movie that follows it, those are sort of the movies where Travolta moves from being like a teen idol to being like a great adult actor. And I want to talk about Blowout because cinema aficionados a lot will list this as one of his best films, one of the greatest yeah. films that he's made. And, you know, just looking sort of at the, the stats of the film, it doesn't look like it was a very commercially successful film, but I think it has garnered a, a major cult following. And I watched it for the first time only three months ago, just because, wow. just because the buzz about the film was just so much. You've got to see it. And it's it's fantastic. So the greatest. It's 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 hands down the best movie he's ever been in. Uh, probably his best performance. For my money, probably one of the fifteen or sixteen greatest American films ever made. I mean, it is it is a mat, flat out masterpiece. And that is you know again talking about directors that he had these relationships with. De Palma, he had done Carrie. You know, Blowout. Speaking to your point about not being commercial, it wasn't. And De Palma knew it wasn't. I mean, De Palma. 
did not intend for Blowout to be as big a budget movie as it was. I mean, he was going to do it at a much more modest level as a sort of scrappy indie because he knew it was a movie that wasn't going to make a lot of money. And, and I mean, I don't want to get, I don't want to have any spoilers for people who haven't seen it. Cause I think it is a movie that anyone who's listening to this, if you like John Travolta and or Brian De Palma, you, you know, you need to see blowout and I, and I won't, I won't give any spoilers except, but I will say it's a very bleak movie and De Palma, you know, he knew that. So he was going to do his low budget film and he actually gave Travolta the script not to offer it to him, but just to read as, you know, he and Travolta were friends from Carrie and, uh, and Travolta was friends with Nancy Allen, who was married to De Palma at the time and ended up starring with him in Blowout. And so either Nancy Allen or De Palma, uh, I can't remember who, just gave Travolta the script for Blowout just, just to read as a friend. And Travolta went nuts over it and wanted to do it. And so as soon as Travolta said he wanted to do it, that stepped the movie up to a new level. Now, it couldn't really be a modest little indie anymore. It was like, because as soon as you had Travolta, you had the biggest movie star in the world in the movie. So that meant De Palma could get more more money, more resources, a bigger release, all that. And I'm as a movie fan, I'm glad for that because I think it's great that that movie has the scale it does and the resources that it does. But I think you know it it was a big disappointment box office wise in relation to its cost because it wasn't a cheap movie and it just wasn't the Travolta that his audience wanted to see at that moment because again it's it's not only not only is it a bleak movie it's a movie where travolta's character it, it's in this tradition of de palma movies where you have sort of weak uh heroes i mean de palma a lot of his films whether it's casualties of war or blowout or dressed to kill or you know whatever he, he's body double his movies are often about men who can't save people they can't save women or they can't commit they can't they can't accomplish the heroic act and i don't think anybody on a mass scale was interested in seeing travolta do that at the time but the movie itself is this amazing sort of like bouillabaisse of american history you know it's got these like elements of like the chappaquiddick and watergate and it's and and the kennedy assassination kind of kind of put into this blender with Francis Coppola's The Conversation and Antonioni's Blow Up and this sort of, and it's also this kind of, again, like anthropological study of exploitation filmmaking at the time because Travolta plays a sound man in the movie who is a recordist for slasher films and things like that. And it opens with this great parody of slasher movies at the time. And I don't know how well that reads today because at the time Blow Up came out, it was one, there were, they were releasing one of those slasher movies every other week. And, and De Palma's parody of it is really really uh is really clever and funny but anyway travolta in the movie as this basically as this sound man who stumbles upon a conspiracy it just he just gives an unbelievably rich performance and it's a hard again it's a hard movie to talk about without spoilers but all i'll say is the final shot of shots of travolta in that movie are just as devastating as anything you're ever going to see on screen and, and it's it's a shame that the movie wasn't better recognized at the time i mean i think it, it was well received critically you know i remember pauline kale and roger ebert and a lot of other people were quite high on it and as a kid i thought it was like the greatest thing i'd ever seen when i saw it for the first time but but it didn't do well and it was another one of those ones where it was thought of as a kind of stumbling block along this trajectory of travolta's career and um and and it's interesting because after Blowout flopped, then he did three movies in a row that were kind of 
in a way, attempts, I mean, I don't know if they were conscious attempts on his part, but they they were movies that seemed like they were kind of, they, they all had parallels to earlier successes. Uh, but as you say, Blowout Now is pretty much widely accepted among cinephiles as a classic and you know criterion put out a great disc of it and it's you know at this point i think it's it is it's it has like risen to the place in film history that it deserves to be in is it De palma's best film i mean it's like asking a parent to choose their favorite child (laughs) uh i think it's you know i i think there's a level on which you could say sort of objectively speaking it is his best film it's 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 definitely I think it's in a way it's his most perfect film. It's kind of, I feel like it's the most De Palma, De Palma film in a way, in the way that it like combines all of his preoccupations in one movie, because I think you get, you get the satirist, you get the political side of De Palma, you get the genre filmmaker De Palma, you get, you get all of his sides done as well as they can be. And again, I think something De Palma doesn't get credit for is that he's, one of the great actors, directors, I think, you know, people think of Palma and they think of the split screens and the tracking shots and what a visual stylist he is. And he certainly is all those things, but he's also a truly, truly great actors, director, and who, who just never gets the credit for that. And I think if you, that movie Travolta and Nancy Allen and John Lithgow's performances in that movie are, and Dennis Farina, they are all kind of uh, testaments to that. But it's hard for me to pick a favorite De Palma movie because I also, I like different ones for different reasons. And my personal favorite is probably Body Double, but that just has to do with how I, I, I tend to like when directors go really crazy and Body Double is a really crazy movie. But well, it's a little more controlled. Saturday Night Fever, one of the biggest movies of the 1970s, one of the most culturally significant films, changed the landscape of music and fashion for, for years to come. I'm not 100% sure where the inspiration to do a sequel came from, um, but I found it really interesting that they returned to that character, that John returned to that character, and that um, Sylvester Stallone directed the film. Can you talk a little bit about Staying Alive? Because it's it's certainly not in the zeitgeist of uh, of his career. Yeah, well, Staying Alive, I mean, they, they had talked about doing a Saturday Night Fever sequel for years, and the uh, writer of... The first one, I think his name was Norman Wexler, something like that. Norman Wexler had written a script for a sequel that I think, from what I understand, Travolta wasn't particularly happy with. And Travolta was a fan of Rocky III, which Stallone had written and directed. And so I think that's how this idea came about, that Stallone would come and rewrite the script and direct the movie, because Travolta really liked the the sort of uh, the style of Rocky III and the way that that movie connected with the audience because you know Stallone as a director I think as a writer and director I think he he clearly is a guy who he knows how to push the audience's buttons really really well and so and I think Rocky III was kind of a supreme example of that and and so anyway he so he came on to rewrite and direct Staying Alive which was contrary to how people remember it was actually a really big hit i mean it wasn't as big of a hit as saturday night fever but it did pretty well and it and it also had a pretty successful soundtrack album the album had it was like two sides and one side was all bg songs who had of course done the music for the first movie and the other side was mostly songs by frank stallone sylvester stallone's brother which i actually think are pretty catchy songs although i remember at the time there being a mad magazine parody where they made fun of it by, you know, like like one guy in this cartoon asks another guy or says to another guy, did you know that Frank Stallone got the job in, in staying alive uh, by beating out 
you know, 400 other songwriters. And then the other guy says, Oh really? I didn't know Stallone had that many brothers, <laughs> but I think, um, but I think, but I actually think the Frank Stallone music is pretty good. And I think staying alive, but staying alive was again, talking about how like the critics would run hot and cold on, on Travolta. I mean, it was just decimated critically. And I think partly because it's got, you know, for people who haven't seen it, the conceit is that Tony Monero is now an aspiring professional dancer in Manhattan, and he gets a part in this Broadway musical called Satan's Alley. And the musical is really crazy. I mean, it's this kind of riff on like Bob Fosse. It's like Bob Fosse goes to hell or something. And I think the sort of nuttiness of the musical and the fact that Travolta spent so much of the to- the movie in this kind of loincloth or something and like with his muscles really oiled up. It, it, it kind of made it an easy target for the critics. However, I will say in defense of staying alive, I think that Stallone's script and Travolta's performance in the first two thirds of the movie, before you get to the kind of wacky Broadway musical, I, I actually think they capture something really interesting. I think this is, uh, this is another thing about Travolta is He's kind of, and something he has in common with Clint Eastwood, actually, now that I think about it. Like him and Clint Eastwood in this period are kind of like the great commenters, commentators as actors on American masculinity and sort of like poking at its like weak spots. And certainly Saturday Night Fever has that, Urban Cowboy has that, Blowout Big Time has that. And then Staying Alive, you've got this guy who's kind of was the whole conceit is that in the first movie, you know, he was the king of his neighborhood. And now it's like he comes to the big city and he is suddenly like the standards have totally changed. And it's about this guy adapting to those standards and adapting to the different standards in terms of how he's expected to relate to women. There's this kind of love triangle in the movie that is very interesting. And I think it's a really great performance in terms of like showing this guy's weird seesawing between having an enormous ego and between and being just incredibly insecure and it's something that carries over into into perfect and and and, and again it's something i don't think travolta's always always given credit for but um but it was a it was a again it was a very popular movie but just terribly received critically and i think it was sort of the beginning of this idea in the press that like travolta was on a decline and the, the movies you know, the movie, the two movies he did after it didn't really help that. I mean, he did, so, you know, my original point about how he did this string of movies that were res, sort of trying to recapture previous glories. And again, I don't know that he thought that, but I think that's probably what the studios and the financiers were thinking. So Staying Alive was a Saturday Night Fever sequel. Then his next movie was Two of a Kind, which reunited him with Olivia Newton-John. And, you know, which even I as a Travolta and Olivia Newton-John enthusiast have to admit is not a particularly great movie. And then after Two of a Kind, he reunited with James Bridges. For perfect, uh, not only with James Bridges, but with Aaron Latham, who had written the uh, article on which Urban Cowboy was based and co-wrote that screenplay, I think, with Bridges. And then Perfect was based on another Aaron Latham article about the rise of like, uh, you know, gym, like gyms and aerobics and stuff and how like how everyone in the 80s was treating how they were treating gyms like and health clubs sort of like singles bars. And then the obsession with physical perfection and all that. Anyway, Aaron Latham had written an article about this stuff for Rolling Stone, and then they adapted it into Perfect in 1985. And Perfect, it, but, but it's kind of a weird, there's a lot of differences between it and Urban Cowboy. And, you know, Urban Cowboy, they adapted the article by basically telling the story set in the world that the article was set in. Perfect, they kind of went this meta way where they 
basically turn Aaron Latham into a character. I mean, the movie's about a journalist for Rolling Stone magazine going to L.A. to research health clubs. And so Travolta is essentially playing Aaron Latham, although it's a different name. And Jan Wenner, the editor of Rolling Stone, is in the movie basically playing himself under a different name. And it's a movie about it's about this whole obsession with physical perfection and everything else. But what it's really about is journalistic ethics or the lack thereof. And this is why I think that movie got so trashed by the critics is I think they didn't, I think it got trashed for the same reason that the Sidney Pollack movie from the late seventies, absence of malice didn't got very mixed reviews, which is in both cases, I think journalists did not like seeing themselves presented in the kind of unfavorable light that the movie was presenting them in because the Travolta character in perfect, he's, you know, he's very slippery in terms of where his, how, you know where his morals lie, and in terms of the how honest he is with his subjects and and things like that. Uh, and I will say, I think Travolta in that movie, as someone who has worked as a journalist myself and who has known a lot of them, I think Travolta really nails it in that movie. I think he really nails this like combination of sort of being both an authority and kind of full of shit and ha- and think and again again that combination that same combination i was talking about earlier from the earlier movies of having an enormous ego and yet also being kind of insecure and it's it's a really interesting movie much like staying alive i think it 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 is sort of encouraged people who weren't on its wavelength to laugh at it because of some of the like the musical numbers like there's this crazy sequence where travolta goes to jamie lee curtis's aerobics class and they're doing this dance. They're doing these aerobics in this dance that's essentially like they're miming having sex with each other while they're supposedly working out. And it's it's uh, and it goes on forever. Like for whatever reason, Bridges let the thing lets the scene play out for a long time. And so it gives the movie this reputation that it's kind of kitschy or whatever. But uh, but I stand with Quentin Tarantino, who you know has declared that Perfect is a really great underrated unsung movie, and you know I agree with that. But it was sort of after Two of a Kind. You know, both Two of a Kind and Perfect were not, they're both expensive movies that didn't do very well and both got terrible reviews. And that combined with terrible reviews of Staying Alive kind of, kind of put his, kind of cooled his career for a while. He didn't make another movie for something like four years. I think after Perfect, then he wasn't in another movie until 89 when he was in a couple, he was in The Experts, which I've never seen. Uh, and then his sort of, big comeback movie which was look who's talking and let's talk well let's see you mentioned the experts i was when doing some research for for preparing for this i couldn't find that movie to save mm-hmm. my life and uh so if any listeners out there know a way for me to find that I, i'd be very interested in watching it in uh eight, 1989 the amy heckerling directed look who's talking comes out Talk a little bit about what this does for Travolta. I mean, I think it just reminds people how much they like him. I remember seeing the movie at a screening. I was living, I was in Chicago still, I guess. I was, it was, I, it came out, it must have come out in the fall or something of 89 because I had just started college and went to an advanced screening of it, not really knowing anything about it. And the heckerling gives Travolta this great, introduction in the movie where you know, he plays i think he plays a cab driver or something and she just kind of has him screech on screen in his cab and when that happened this theater went insane everyone just burst into applause when john travolta screeched on screen and i think it was because there was just this like mass recognition of oh yeah we missed this guy 
you know, we didn't want him to go away. And now he's back. And I think, you know, the movie was a huge hit and they, they, they tried to capitalize on it very quickly. I mean, the crazy thing about Look Who's Talking is they made between when Look Who's Talking came out in 89 and when he did Pulp Fiction in 94. I mean, he did two more Look Who's Talking sequels before they even got to Pulp Fiction. I mean, they did like Look Who's Talking 2. And I think the other one was called Look Who's Talking Now or something like that. Although the sequels are not. Uh, very good movies but but yeah I, I think it just kind of reminded people that they missed him but it still took until Pulp Fiction to really like put him back in the mainstream as like a major movie star because for whatever reason the movies that I mean basically between Look Who's Talking and Pulp Fiction you just did Look Who's Talking sequels and a couple of kind of barely released movies that I've not seen and and uh and the movie Shout where he's really more of a supporting He's like a supporting character in Shout. He's not. It's more like a movie for the teenage leads. But you know, um, but I think Tarantino had, you know, Tarantino had had grown up with Travolta. Was you know, Tarantino at at one point named Blowout one of his three favorite movies of all time. He his three favorite movies he once said were Blowout, Taxi Driver, and Rio Bravo. He may have changed that by now, but at the time those were his three favorite movies. So he was somebody who had been had recognized what a great actor Travolta was for a long time and what a great movie star he was, and you know. With Pulp Fiction, he just he knew something that nobody else at the, the in Hollywood did at the moment. I mean, he just knew that that Travolta was ready and ripe for a huge comeback, and you know, boy, did uh, did Pulp Fiction give it to him. The way I want to sort of frame looking at Pulp Fiction and sort of the post career in the 1990s is, I want to ask the question: In the late 1970s, Travolta became one of the if not the biggest movie star in the world, did he become a bigger movie star in the 1990s? And I'll follow that up by saying, was he the most popular movie star in the 1990s? No, I mean, I don't think that you can't compare it to what he was in the 70s. Again, again, it was just I don't think it was nowhere close to that. I mean, again, I think he became big again. Just, yeah, using that, he didn't, he wasn't ruling the world that he did the way he did in the 70s. And I think it was more, I think in the 90s, he was, it was the mantle of superstardom was kind of being spread out among several people. I mean, you know, him and Cruz and Schwarzenegger. And, you know, I don't, I don't know who necessarily the biggest, you know, probably Cruz, I guess. I mean, was, was probably the biggest person in the 90s. But, um, I, so I wouldn't say that I, I don't think Pulp Fiction, I think it made him huge in a way it made him huge in a nineties way, <laughs> but that's not the same thing as being huge in the late seventies. Cause I think by the nineties pop culture was already getting more, a little bit more spread out. You know, I mean, it was nothing like it is now, but it was, it was already getting there. So I, yeah, I don't, I don't think he quite, he, yeah, my, my answer, I guess my, my, my answer is no. However, it certainly, you know, it kicked off this, great period in the 90s where he did a lot you know he probably did more great movies in a way in the 90s or at least as many as he did uh, in his period when he was you know really at the height of his popularity i would say he gave probably next to blowout his best performance in the 90s which was in primary colors but uh but go ahead well that, that, that i want to ask you is you know of all the films that were released post Pulp Fiction, just reading the list here, you know, Get Shorty, White Man's Burden, Michael, Phenomenon, Broken Arrow, Mad City, Face Off, She's So Lovely, A Civil Action, Thid Red Line, Primary Colors, The General's Daughter. What are the real standouts for you on that list? Uh, You know, it's funny. For me, well, certainly it's funny because some of them are standouts as movies and some of them are standouts as 
Travolta performances and some are both. Like I think Thin Red Line is a truly, truly great movie, uh, but Travolta's not in it that much. He's one of like 50 guys in that movie that all kind of, you know, there's, there's there are a lot of, of actors in that movie. There's a lot to spread around, but I think, you know, primary colors hit where he's essentially playing Bill Clinton is, I think that's an amazing performance. And again, another one of his great kind of delves into, you know, masculinity and like male uh, sort of sexual attitudes and things like that. And that's a very, it's a very interesting movie in terms of the questions that it raises about the connections between like power and sex and whether or not, whether or not there's something inherent in men who rise to that level where they're the thing that makes them rise can also be the source of their downfall and where, and the question of does somebody who doesn't have the kind of willful, uh, what's I don't know. I, I like the, the willingness to put on blinders about other people and about what his actions are doing to other people that the character Travolta plays in that movie does is I think the character's name is Jack Stanton. Uh, but the question of like whether or not that is in a way a key component that someone needs to become the most powerful person in the free world. And, you know, it's another one of those movies where Travolta's innate like ability really pays off because I think the movie really captures this guy's like, it really captures his lack of self-awareness. You know, you don't, this guy, even though he's doing things throughout the movie that have these kind of terrible ramifications in certain ways, you'd never get the sense that he's a bad guy or that he's doing it maliciously. And I think that that has a lot to do with Travolta's kind of inherent likability, which also is, I think, key in Travolta's other truly great performance of the 90s, which is in A Civil Action, which I just watched again last night, and I hadn't seen it in many years since it came out. And, and, and boy, does that movie hold up. And boy, has it aged well. And it's a movie where Travolta plays this kind of opportunistic, ambulance chaser lawyer who finds his moral center and again it's a really interesting i always love seeing travolta play bad guys or morally compromised guys because i think he really does a great job of finding the humanity in them without soft peddling it and you know and it's i mean another one of his really fun performances obviously from the 90s is john Woo's face off where he gets to be both the hero and the bad guy in the same movie so i, I mean i think all those would be kind of the ones that that stand out for me from that era as, you know, being, and, and get short, you know, certainly get shorty was a great, uh, a great movie and a great performance too. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think the thing, you know, another thing about Travolta that's interesting as I think about it is, you know, George C. Scott once said that when he watches an actor in a movie, he, you know, he wants to see the joy of performance. And I think that is something you get from Travolta. And I think it's one of the reasons why he's, he, why he is such a big movie star and why his he's lasted as long as he has is I do think you really sense this. There's this infectious joy of what he does and joy of performance. And it's there in, it's there in the in obvious movies like Get Shorty or Face Off where they have, there's a little more humor and all that kind of stuff. But it's there in um, a civil action too. Like you could almost sense Travolta getting excited by having found the key to this guy and figuring out how to convey it to the audience. And I think that's something that carries over, you know, I mean, we may talk a little later about his, his recent movies where, where he's been largely doing a lot of like VOD movies and foreign sales movies and stuff like that. 
And those movies, the quality is very up and down, but he's always great. I mean, and he, and he never feels like he's phoning it in. You never get the sense that Travolta, he is, he is giving it in every movie as though he's doing blowout. I mean, he's always treating it as though it's like going to be the best movie of his career and a possibility to be his best performance. And I think that passion is probably now that I think it's just occurred to me now, but I think that passion is maybe what I've always responded to in him and why I continue to watch him all the time. When we look at, when we look at after Pulp Fiction, you know, 94 to 2000, just a string of, you know, big theatrical releases, uh, 2000 to 2012, is it just sort of a, a continuation of that post Pulp Fiction career? And I'm, I'm wondering, and, but there were some more ups and downs as far as, critical responses, box office responses. And I'm wondering if we look strictly from 2000 to 2012, if there are some standouts and notable films from his filmography in that time period. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that period, what you have is, like you say, it's, it's in a way, it's his most productive period in terms of, you know, that he was getting out at least a movie a year. And, you know, but I think what you have is Sir Travolta settling into this period as, a working actor. I mean, he's he's still a movie star, but in a way, it's this sort of transitional period where he's a movie star who's also a character actor. I mean, and again, talk about transformative performances. In 2007, he plays Edna Turnblad in uh, the remake or the musical version of Hairspray. You know, I guess the original was a musical too, but he played. You know, he's basically playing the divine role. And Hairspray, which I think was, is for me, one of the standouts in that period. I think that's a really great performance because again, it's like, you know, so a guy getting, dressing up in drag and putting on a fat suit and all that kind of stuff, that can be a very, uh, you know, that could just be a caricature. And Travolta like really nailed, makes that woman come to life as a human being who you really empathize with and, and love and, and the, the dance sequence, the, the musical number he has with Christopher Walken playing his husband is just fantastic. I mean, that's just, and, and it was, it was sort of a great experience getting to see Travolta dance again in a movie and do a musical. So, I mean, you know, so, I mean, like that's, you know, that's a high point. And, and I think he also, you know, not long after that in 2009 gave a great performance. And in fact, is by far and away, in my opinion, the best thing in the movie in uh, Tony Scott's remake of taking a Pelham one, two, three. So, you know, you've got, you've got those, you've got, the Punisher. You've got him revisiting his um, his Chili Palmer character from Get Shorty and Be Cool in that sequel. This period you're talking about also kind of gets capped off with, I think, a really great performance as a crooked DEA guy in Oliver Stone's movie Savages. So he's kind of doing. It's kind of an interesting period because he's kind of jumping around from you know auteur movies like Savages to these kind of crowd pleasing comedies like Wild Hogs and Old Dogs, and then sort of hard-edged action and something like the punisher and uh you know and again hairspray he's doing like all, he's doing cartoon voices and things like bolt he's kind of again it's like a sort of working actor he did you know he did a really good fun action movie from paris with love and you know and then and then it'll have, and then you know another movie he was in that i really liked towards the beginning of that period was domestic disturbance which is a thriller directed by harold becker that he did with uh vince vaughn and so and Swordfish, you know he had swordfish he just, he, he, I guess I'm just, I sound like I'm just kind of reeling off titles here, but the point is that it's a very varied group of movies in terms of who he's working with. You know, some of them are with like, you know, novice directors, some are with big auteurs, some are crowd pleasers, some are very dark, some are, you know, studio movies, some are kind of indie. And it's, 
you know, again, I think it's just kind of an interesting period to watch him settle into a period where he doesn't necessarily, I feel like he wasn't being, and I mean, this is a, in a good way. I feel like he wasn't being as careful about his choices. I feel like he was just liking the fact that he could just keep working all the time and just kind of kept doing it. And, and I think a lot of interesting movies came out of that. I want to talk about the period between 2013 and the present, because I'm looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, potentially eleven films in his catalog here, and none of them had a theatrical or a major theatrical release. And I want to know. I want to see if you could talk about the landscape and how it has changed, because I don't think this is Travolta saying, I don't want to do big theatrical releases. I'm thinking that my theory is that those roles have dried up for all actors. And I wonder if you can yeah. touch on that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that in general, it's become, you know, it's, it, yeah, I think in general, there was a shift and, and I think it might be getting, it might go back again. It might get back. I feel like the last few years, Theatrical films have started getting more diverse again in terms of their subject matter and budget ranges and things like that. But there was this period uh, right around the time you're talking about this starting in 2013. There's a period from 2013 on for several years when the studios got much more constricted in terms of the types of movies they're making. They started making fewer movies. I mean, I suppose the the per, the ultimate example of this is you know Disney, which Disney who released, I think, a couple of, well, they released several of Travolta's 90s movies. I mean, they did Civil Action, and then they did, and moving a little later, I think they did Old Hogs and, or Old Dogs and Wild Hogs and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, Disney moved into a period, basically, where all they were was a bank for Marvel, Pixar, and Star Wars. I mean, they, they do virtually nothing anymore that isn't in some kind of franchise or tentpole. And a lot of the business kind of moved that way. And unfortunately, Disney acquiring Fox may make that even more so now. So I think I think you had this shift where a lot of guys who kind of, you know, had very, very strong theatrical careers, like Travolta, De Niro, uh, even to a certain extent, Pacino, and then obviously like Nicolas Cage and John Cusack and a lot of other people, a lot of these guys, uh, the part, yeah, the parts just weren't there as much, you know, unless you were getting cast as a bad guy in a Marvel movie or something. Uh, the part wasn't going to be there for you. And yet there is this big market for those guys, for those names in foreign territory. So they get so a lot of these movies are put together via sort of foreign pre-sales models where financiers cobble together the money by selling off. You know, they go to a can market or something and they sell off the rights. To, they, go, they go there and they say, hey, I've got a movie with John Travolta and Robert De Niro called The Killing Season or whatever that movie was called. They, they go and say, I've, I've got this movie, you know. I'll sell you France the rights for X amount of money. I'll sell Germany X amount of money. And usually as part of that, like they have to guarantee some kind of theatrical release. So the movie will open in like a handful of theaters domestically, but basically go straight to VOD. And I think for actors, you know, like Travolta, who are name actors, but not necessarily the guy, you know, the guys who are going to get cast in the Marvel movies or whatever, um, that's just kind of the place for them to go. And some of those movies, by the way, are pretty good. I mean, there's not, you know, I think it, 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 they wildly vary, but I actually think, um, 
you know, Travolta's done some some pretty good ones. He's he's in uh, a movie called I Am Wrath that was like a revenge movie directed by Chuck Russell, who did Eraser and some other stuff. And I Am Wrath is a really, really solid action movie. And and then In a Valley of Violence, which is a Western he did with uh, Ty West. I mean, In a Valley of Violence is technically not that model. Like In a Valley of Violence was a, a Bloomhouse movie. And, you know, Bloomhouse has their own model, which is they basically have carte blanche to at least is the way it used to work. I don't know if this is still the way it is, but they used to have a deal at Universal where Jason Bloom had carte blanche to kind of make whatever movie he wanted as long as the budget ceiling was four million bucks. Because that was like that amount of money Universal could basically not lose by just shoving the movie out on Netflix and their various cable platforms and all that stuff. Bloom would make these movies but they and then they would decide after they were done whether or not they would get a theatrical release. And so In a Valley of Violence was kind of one of those. And I think it got a very, very minuscule theatrical release. But that's a really, really good movie, In a Valley of Violence. And Travolta's fantastic in it. It's a sort of homage to spaghetti westerns. It's like uh, sort of a riff on the Leone movies with Eastwood. And uh, Travolta is a kind of somewhat crooked, but not really just a, basically a guy who just wants to protect his son, this marshal who gets into a uh, sort of battle with, Ethan Hawke. And, um, you know, that, that movie in a value of violence, I would certainly hold up against most things that do get a wide theatrical release. So, but yeah, I think that's, it's just, I think it's just the reality of the way things are. And I mean, I think, I think the thing is, I, I do think though, that the industry might be changing a little bit. I think in the last few years, it, I felt like it started a little bit the year the La La Land and Moonlight came out. Um, towards the end of that year, I started to sense that at the movies, I was, there was a little bit more variety when I was going to the movies. It wasn't just Marvel movies. It wasn't just superheroes. It wasn't just Star Wars. It wasn't just Disney princesses. And I think that has been slowly but steadily, it's been slowly but steadily moving back in that kind of direction the last few years. And even, you know, as we record this this weekend, uh, the number one movie that's out right now is Us, which is an auteur-driven movie that is not a sequel, is not based on a book or based on a TV show or any of those, a remake or any of those things. So I'm hoping it's going to change a little bit. But I think with, and I think with Travolta, I think, you know, him, I suspect he will probably, you know, do more, he'll probably get back into more theatrical movies if things shift a little bit more in that direction. Or if, you know, or if again, like a young auteur, like a Tarantino or somebody like what Tarantino did in Pulp Fiction, like somebody who has grown up worshiping him and knowing what he can do, uh, gives him a good part. But, you know, in the meantime, again, I, I think I Am Wrath is a really good movie. And Valley of Violence is a really good movie. The Forger is a pretty good movie, you know, and I, and, and again, he is always good in those movies because he, he did the gaudy, film which you know to be honest with you i thought was a terrible movie around him i I, I don't know what happened with that movie because the screenplay the first writer on it or at least one of them was lem dobbs he's a great screenwriter and it just feels like something went wrong with that movie along the way and it's not a good movie but travolta is incredible in it as Gotti. i mean it's kind of a bummer that the movie isn't better because because he is just fantastic and you know that's sort of the pleasure and and it's interesting because some of his vod movies are like throwbacks to, to to some of his earlier films like trading paint the movie he's in about you know car racing is kind of another sort of like a throwback to like urban cowboy it's like another kind of subculture movie and it's like him playing a kind of country character and all that kind of stuff and so you know i find all those movies very interesting as a fan like i don't necessarily you know in a way i'd rather watch something like uh i am wrath or, or speed kills than i would probably you know old dogs or wild hogs but amidst all of that we shouldn't miss the fact that 
you know, a year or two ago, a couple of years ago, I guess now, he gave another one of the great performances of his career in the FX miniseries, uh, American Crime Story, where he played Robert Shapiro. And I think, I think, speaking to your point about where the parts have gone, I think for most actors of Travolta's caliber and generation, they do basically have to go either to like the sort of VOD foreign sales route or to television. I mean, that's kind of where all the parts have gone. And he, I felt like American Crime Story really uh, just brought back to everybody what a great actor he is. That was just, it was a great part and a great show. And, and if people haven't seen it, I really highly recommend it. Jim, I'm really encouraged by what you said about there being a little more diversity in what is coming out theatrical because it is almost the end of March. And I have not been to the theater once this year. Not once. Now, truth be told, I'm going to go see Us later on tonight because I'm I'm re- actually really excited to see that because it's, like you said, it's an original IP. It's an, it's an original story, and that's what I'm hungry for. Well, I'm really encouraged by what you said, and, and I, I let me tell you something about John Travolta in closing. He is one of a handful, and I mean two or three actors, that I just go see everything he's in. In the post-Pulp Fiction era, I have seen every John Travolta film that was released theatrically in the theater, and I can't say that about anybody else. So I think mm-hmm. that speaks to his likability and and the, his star quality, is the fact of the matter is, you know, I am encouraged by what you said because I want to go back to the big screen, and I want to see him back on the big screen. Yeah. Well, and I think he's got, you know, there's a movie he's got coming out and I don't know what kind of release it's going to get. I don't know if it's going to get theatrical or VOD or whatever, but this movie he's in Moose with that. I actually know the guys who wrote it and directed it and everything. Like I've sort of had a little bit of an inside track on that movie. That movie, it's like, is a part, unlike anything he's ever played before. It's a great character. It's a, it's a very movie, but in a really good way. And I think, I think that movie is going to, surprise a lot of people and i think is going to again just just remind people like he kind of always does you know he just he kind of will just when people have kind of forgotten a little bit about him then he come he always comes back with some great performance and a great movie and just reminds everybody that he's uh one of the best there's ever been that's a great way to end it right there uh jim i know that you've been doing a lot of commentary tracks is there anything out recently that people should be checking out i've got one coming out i think the problem one of the biggest ones i've got is coming out in may uh, there's a new Blu-ray of Oliver Stone's Nixon that's coming out. So I talk on that one for three hours, which was quite an ordeal. Uh, but it's a commentary track I'm pretty happy with. So there's so that's coming out in May. And uh, there's also, uh, I've got one coming out in a couple of weeks on a, uh, speaking of Disney and Touchstone, I've got a commentary track on it. Uh, an interesting Disney movie from the 90s, or I guess 89, An Innocent Man with Tom Selleck. So that's coming out. So yeah, I've got, got those. And then um, I'm trying to think if I've got, there's a bunch that are supposed to be coming out later on, but I don't have any dates for any of them. So. And I do want to remind the listeners that there was a period of time that uh, Disney did release R-rated films, correct? <laughs> that is true. Yeah, no, I mean, they, they uh, you know, that Touchstone, I've actually been doing a lot of commentaries for those movies because Disney doesn't care about them anymore. They don't care about their Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures Library, so they've been licensing them out to uh, Kino Lorber and other independent companies. And So I've been doing a lot of commentaries for those movies. And, you know, I sort of took it for granted at the time. I didn't really realize in a way, I, during the, I, I didn't realize until after the fact what a great decade for movies the 90s were. I really, I really didn't realize it when I was living through it. And now I look back at the variety of stuff that was being made and coming out, and, and it was it was pretty uh, pretty extraordinary. Although again, I think we're getting back to a good 
we're moving in the right direction. I mean, I really think last year was the best year for movies in, in many, many years. And I had a hard time last year narrowing down uh, my my top 10 list. I could I could have made a top 30 list. If people want to follow you on social media and check out your uh, your work, your website, things like that. You can go to jimhemphillfilms.com, which has stuff about my movies and where you can watch them. And then uh, I'm also on Twitter at Jimmy Hemphill. Outstanding. Well, Jim, listen, it's always an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Like I've said numerous times in the past, you bring fantastic insight to whatever discussion we're doing. So I look forward to having you back on uh, as soon as possible. Uh, I look forward to it, too. Excellent. And my name is Dana Buckler, and thank you so much for listening.